Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Climate change is leading to more extreme weather events, forest fires, and rising waters along our coastlines. Recently, a conference was held in Duluth to discuss these and other climate-related issues. This week, we talk with the conference's keynote speaker, Dr. Jesse Keenan. He is a social scientist on the faculty of the Harvard University School of Design and is an expert on the impacts of climate change on property and infrastructure. His presentation was titled Destination Duluth, the fact and fiction of a shared climate future. We spoke with him by phone. Professor Keenan, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. Your research and teaching focuses on urban development and climate adaptation. How did you become interested in these subjects? Well, I have taught in a design school for a number of years. My disciplinary training in real estate and in law and in urban planning uh, had a number of different outlets. I've understood for a good number of years, or at least I've framed it for my own personal motivation, the idea that environmentalism, as when I grew up and particularly when I was trained initially as an environmental lawyer, was oriented around toxics and pollution control and an idea of conservation. But as I began to realize that the built environment and perhaps the lack of sustainability with the built environment represented both a risk and an opportunity, and I felt that if we trained professionals in the built environment, designers, architects, real estate developers, professionals and the like, uh, urban planners, if we could build in a kind of environmental ethos, but also an analytical and conceptual skill set so that they could understand not just sustainability, but environmental systems and urban ecology and a wide variety of other disciplinary understandings, that they would have greater sensitivity and could be perhaps more informed stakeholders in the broader human settlement. And so for me, that was a somewhat unique uh, area of interest that transcended into research more formally later on in life, pursuing a PhD that really focused at the intersection of climate adaptation and the built environment. Climate change is causing more frequent extreme weather events and climate change-related incidents such as forest fires. How is this impacting our infrastructure, housing, and commercial properties? Well, it is true that when you have a shift in mean, you very often, as a fundamental aspect of statistics, see a flattening of distribution. And in that flattening of distributions associated with extreme events, we do get more. We leave it up to attribution science to um, give us the counterfactual probability of these extreme events. But it is fair to say a number of different environmental shocks are derivative and driven by anthropogenic climate change. Within the context of property and a market perspective, uh, we were in 2018 uh, the first to have published peer-reviewed evidence of the existence of a climate change signal in a real estate market. And what that really represents is on the demand side. And what we found are shifting consumer preferences, that is discounting buying between buyers and sellers of real estate, sellers taking less, buyers paying less, for property that was in a high hazard zone. And The theory in economics is this, that it's a combination of existing experience, the nuisance, the decline in productivity, the cost burdens associated with increased insurance, taxes, property assessments, like that's fairly intuitive. The other component of it, behavioral economics, for instance, uh, is that people are anticipating the decline. So it's their perception of the future climate risk 
um, as it relates, to, um, particularly with coastal property, as it's oriented to storm surge, flooding, but also sea level rise and inundation. It's that perception, and it's some balance thereof, experience perception that's driving this discounting behavior. Rising sea levels and violent weather phenomenon such as hurricanes are causing significant damage to property on our nation's coastlines. What can be done to mitigate the damage, and may we need to consider moving populations away from these vulnerable areas? Well, the science as to the probability occurrence of or the connection between climate change and the occurrence of uh, hurricanes is not so clear-cut. What is clear-cut in the science is that the strength of hurricanes and the intensity of hurricanes relative to sea surface temperatures, that correlation exists and is pretty strong. So we don't necessarily know we're getting more hurricanes, but the hurricanes that we're having, particularly in areas of development in the Atlantic and in the Gulf of Mexico, they're getting stronger. And that has been seen and borne out in the past two years in particular. And in fact, the attribution science has, in fact, been done over the past two years in many of these hurricanes. So we have several options. We can think tactically in terms of risk mitigation through green infrastructure, through gray infrastructure, such as dikes, pumps, levees, the kind of hardening, lots of concrete. Of course, that's very often in direct conflict with our climate mitigation goals based on the carbon footprint of that kind of infrastructure. Or we can think in structural terms or perhaps in more institutional terms about land use configuration, building codes to a lesser extent, and perhaps on even a more long-term or even mid-term perspective, the idea of managed uh, relocation. And in some cases, you could even conceive of that as managed retreat. And so there's a full spectrum, and I think there's a fair amount of heterogeneity or a great deal of variety as to um, risk um, relating to water in particular, but also we don't want to have a kind of unidimensional understanding of this. It's important to remember that extreme heat the burden that has on households, for instance, with air conditioning bills, that is also a nuisance. That is also an impact, um, as well as forest fires, droughts. So there's a wide variety of impacts. It isn't just sea level rise. So we have a, ri- a wide variety of things, and I think our gut instincts as humans is to promote stability, right? We have a very strong status quo bias. And in that, we buy into the heuristic or the kind of rhetoric of resilience. And resilience is actually a fairly conservative concept. There's a number of different categorical variants of resilience. Primarily what we mean is engineering resilience, a kind of elasticity to the operations of the status quo, a capacity to recover. But even resilience, and resilience may include hazard mitigation, it may include different types of infrastructure, it has a material impetus. But even resilience has a certain limitation. There's a threshold of resilience. And at that threshold of resilience, and that may be a function of property taxes, our insurance, whatever our capacity, let's say economically, to even pay for this stuff. At that threshold, one either fails or adapts. And I think what we're looking at in transformative adaptation terms across the United States as it relates to settlement, infrastructure, and the investments that go along with capital planning is some really difficult decisions about the viability of the long term or even within the useful life of these assets. Um, in the face of very immediate climate change things. And again, sea level rise being um, one of the more clear or less clear, depending on how you look at it, but one of the more immediate challenges that we face, particularly when you think that a building or a piece of architecture or infrastructure, rather, has a very long, useful life. We're talking with Dr. Jesse Keenan. He's a social scientist on the faculty of the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. He's an expert on the impacts of climate change on property and infrastructure. 
He was the keynote speaker at a recent climate conference in Duluth. His presentation was titled Destination Duluth, The Fact and Fiction of a Shared Climate Future. Dr. Keenan, how do we decide which areas of the country that are subject to destructive extreme weather events are worthy of rebuilding and which areas should be abandoned altogether? Well, that's not for us to decide in technocratic terms. It's really the processes of democracy and localized decisions about what to protect and what to let go. There is not enough resources for universal adaptation. In fact, neither resilience or adaptation represents absolute goods, um, uh, either from societal or environmental terms. Um, and therefore, when we think about aspects of procedural justice, what's effective, fair, efficient, and perhaps even just, these are local decisions. It's not necessarily a collective body of federal policy that necessarily makes these decisions. And certainly federal policy can help facilitate local determination. But I think where we are is a really critical moment where we perhaps begin to lose control over our own autonomy or our own agency about making these decisions in the face of market-driven responses in terms of the availability and pricing of insurance, mortgages, and other capital market drivers um, that very well may be making these decisions for us. Well, apart from coastal regions, what other areas of the country are the most vulnerable to extreme weather events? Well, we see it right now in the Midwest. We see it with the flooding and the type of flooding that's happening on top of ice and snow and how absolutely destructive that is and a number of different physical forces associated with uh, moving ice sheets. We see it with forest fires in the Pacific and Pacific Northwest in particular, we see it with long-term drought. We see a long-term drought in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands. We see increased, even here in Minnesota, we see increased projections associated with both a warm and wet climate. And that wet climate, um, some order of 10 to 15 to 25 percent increase in precipitation can have dramatic effects when you're talking about stormwater flooding, stormwater management, even a few inches over a very short period of time can have dramatic implications in terms of flooding. There's nowhere in the United States that's immune or climate-proof in that sense. Uh, every region has uh, varying degrees of impact. How do we deal with people in these vulnerable regions who may be unwilling or unable to move elsewhere? Well, I think that's a significant challenge. You know, the idea that there are people who will be trapped. There are people who do not have the means and the mechanisms to relocate. Experience has shown us, and demography has shown us, that in post-shock or storm events in particular, or even earthquakes, there's a diffusion proximity function. People stay relatively close to home. Part of that is their own social networks, family, and certain relationships that allow them to move and, and rebuild. But we have to contextualize a broader demography in the face of a great American slowdown in migration. Uh, much of the American history and economic history, particularly from a labor point of view, has benefited from being fairly mobile. We moved to where the jobs were. And that has slowed down for a number of different reasons. We have dual income, technology, people can work remotely. Um, there's a lot of debt, mortgage debt, student loan debt. All of these things add up to prevent us or inhibit us from moving to where the work necessarily may be. So I think... You know, it impacts a wide spectrum of our population. There will be people who will be trapped, and there's no clear answers about how that will work as a matter of policy and a matter of affordable housing, health care delivery, all of the challenges that will come along with relocation and managed relocation. And, and you think about this really 
uh, I think more critically in the face of an aging society, as we begin to rapidly age, and the amount of people who um, physically may not have the same degree of mobility, not just economically. So there's many challenges ahead of us, and I think that there's a lot of different stakeholders involved in policy and thinking this through that will have to take these challenges on uh, head on um, because we have no other alternative. Well, does the prospect of relocating populations to areas less adversely impacted by climate change also open up an issue of economic inequality? Presumably, higher income and better educated people would have more financial resources and likely better employment opportunities as well if they were forced to move than would lower income and less well-educated people. How do we address this issue? This is absolutely the case. And, you know, what we know from the empirical research is um, two things. One, people who are beneficiaries of disaster aid are disproportionately moderate to upper income, right? So low to moderate or low income populations um, do not have the same uh, access or benefits uh, associated with uh, disaster relief. And not all of climate change is episodic and it's not all about disasters. It's really stress and shock at the same time. We also have to think that, as it relates to property or housing in particular, that much of our system is oriented towards property rights. And therefore, homeowners will be preferenced and sort of biased in many ways to be the beneficiaries of these more structural transitions. I think when we think about the degrees of inequality of those who may not have the means, I don't want to overlook the idea that there is mobility for those of lesser means, and there aren't opportunities to help in that. Therefore, job training relocation assistance in terms of housing, of a wide variety of social support services, may be part of what it means to attract human capital and to attract people and to help mitigate some of the challenges that we face in terms of the inequality of those who may get left behind. And I think that by some measure that's somewhat conventional in terms of job training, uh, in terms of uh, health care access, and, and really thinking about how we can support people to move into um, superior social welfare outcomes for them and their families. But it's not going to be easy. Um, but I, it's certainly a component that I think should be part of any economic development strategy that seeks to attract climate or climate migrants to their jurisdiction. When Dialogue Minnesota returns, more of our conversation on the impacts of climate change with Dr. Jesse Keenan, a social scientist on the faculty of the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. He was the keynote speaker at a recent climate conference in Duluth. His presentation was titled Destination Duluth, the Fact and Fiction of a Shared Climate Future. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Now more of our conversation on the impacts of climate change with Dr. Jesse Keenan, a social scientist on the faculty of the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. He was the keynote speaker at a recent climate conference in Duluth. His presentation was titled Destination Duluth, the Fact and Fiction of a Shared Climate Future. The cost to shore up our infrastructure and move people out of areas adversely impacted by climate change would clearly be enormous. You have suggested that the budgetary and human resources the country would need to deal with the challenge would rival the commitment made to the space program in the 1960s. How would you convince lawmakers and taxpayers that this massive and expensive effort is necessary and ultimately cost-effective? To say something is cost-effective when you're talking about humans, presupposes that we know what is an effective outcome in terms of the future. But when you're talking about 
a structural or institutional broad set of policies that think about a combination of adaptation, resilience, and risk mitigation in the advancement of social stability and the advancement of society, environmental quality, public health, and economic growth by some measure, because we have to have some measure of growth to offset the cost of adaptation. I think that that calculus is quite clear in many ways. I use the example of Florida, and Florida does not have an income tax. Florida makes money from a state tax. They make money from old people. They pay for the state primarily through property taxes. And people in Florida are deadly afraid of a decline in relative uh, assessed values, um, uh, credit access, and mortgage markets. Um, they're afraid of what is on the horizon, and particularly luxury coastal markets, and the implications that has in terms of their own fiscal stability. So I think that there is a lot of complexity and a lot of subjectivity about who bears the cost and who bears the benefits and the distributional aspects of that. But I would say that the level of intelligence, even in Republican states, has a kind of bottom-line logic of economy to it that I think transcends ideology. And I have to tell you, the level of maturity and intelligence behind this uh, is moving quite rapidly, even from just a few years ago. We're seeing a shift in not only belief systems, but a shift in general awareness and intelligence about what's at stake. So I actually feel like we're in an opportunity to continue to educate, to inform, to actually build an adaptive capacity to understand not only the first, second order impacts of climate change, but how that has various distributional effects uh, for all of us, including relating to our own property tax, state income tax, and the like. We're talking with Dr. Jesse Keenan. He is a social scientist on the faculty of the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. He's an expert on the impacts of climate change on property and infrastructure. He was the keynote speaker at a recent climate conference in Duluth. His presentation was titled, Destination Duluth, the Fact and Fiction of a Shared Climate Future. Famines and droughts throughout the world have led to major human migrations in the past. Are we now talking about something that is historically unprecedented in terms of the sheer numbers of people who would need to relocate to less vulnerable areas and the expense associated with this migration? Well, we've had shifts in climate before in the history of humanity. We have some anthropological evidence um, uh, as to the implications of what this meant in terms of culture, society, or what we residually understand of it over thousands of years. The impact of that perhaps had in environmental geography and language and all kinds of other things. So there's certainly some degree of novelty here that's a function of scale. It's well understood that, for instance, in Syria and the recent mass migration you've seen from the Middle East into Europe, um, is driven in part by conflict, but that conflict in its origins, particularly in Syria, was driven by a long-term structural drought that drove farmers into urban areas and led to certain uh, intertribal conflicts and was deeply destabilizing politically. So I think inherently, and you see very similar things in Central America in terms of agriculture uh, and shifting agricultural economies and exposure to climate change or certain environmental or trends in weather that are impacting certain commodity prices and the like, it's hard to escape it in many ways. There's no doubt that from a transnational migration point of view, this is an absolute national security threat and challenge, and perhaps 
opportunity as well for the nations of the world. There's no way around that. It's fairly well documented. You suggest that relocating people to safer areas is necessary in some regions where the climate change impacts are the most frequent and devastating. But what can we do to shore up our infrastructure in other parts of the country where climate change impacts are less extreme? For example, do we need to consider beefing up storm sewer capacity, harden our electrical and telecommunications infrastructure, and modify homes and buildings to better withstand extreme weather events? There is a great deal of work that's gone on for a number of years in thinking about community resilience and engineering resilience. And there are practices in the architecture, engineering, and construction communities among professionals to think about the incorporation of various design and material and technological techniques and designs that can begin to think about our capacity to absorb, stabilize, preserve business continuity, and ultimately an adaptive capacity, sometimes structurally, sometimes programmatic, for these assets and these infrastructures to be able to accommodate shifting ranges in the future. There's no doubt that in terms of design standards, uh, let's say even in civil engineering, we need to think about how, or particularly as it relates to transportation, stormwater management, um, with greater inundation events, for instance, from rainstorms, we need wider culverts. I mean, I remember when I first got into this a good number of years ago, I suppose, one of the things that impressed upon me was an early law change in Germany where they made the gutters on houses two or three inches wider, right? But that had a measurable impact in their capacity for managing water appropriately. And um, there is no singular impact or infrastructure that is immune from this. Another component of this thinking is not just the accretion or the investment we make in these assets and infrastructures, but also how we think about strategic obsolescence. And at what point do we think about useful life? At what point do we think about life cycle analysis? And we begin to underinvest strategically in certain assets as well. So it's a combination of investment and disinvestment strategically that allows us to make sure that we allocate our resources appropriately. You know, one resource that I think is useful perhaps for you and many of your listeners is the um, Community Resilience Guide from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. There's two volumes. NIST, as it is called, is a component of the U.S. Commerce Department. It's a wonderful set of guides that allows even homeowners, but really fundamentally communities, to think about their relationship with infrastructure um, and how they can begin to plan uh, to accommodate future changes in range, performance uh, associated with um, this as a risk function, but also as an opportunity that has a lot of other collateral benefits. We've talked about the regions of the country where climate change impacts are most pronounced. Which areas of the country are potential refuges from climate change? Well, who knows? First of all, for us, we've made certain determinations of perhaps inferior, superior cities by virtue of a a bit of a process of elimination. But we could give some context that flora and fauna, fisheries, if you will, in the northern hemisphere are moving north as they are moving south in the southern hemisphere. Rain shifting is happening. There's a tremendous amount of empirical evidence and observational evidence associated with it. And we can assume, perhaps, that this would also be true of people. And much of the American psyche and the idea of American liberalism is oriented towards our Western expansion. And we've had many great migrations before. I think even here in Minnesota, one of the great things I learned about more recently was the uh, Ojibwe peoples 
and their great migration that landed them in Minnesota. There's a tremendous history of this, but I think we can think relative to environmental benefit or environmental amenities or negative environmental amenities associated with risk and hazard from climate change impacts, that perhaps with a superior, let's say, more even moderate climate in the north, that many cities such as Buffalo, Duluth, and the like may represent superior cities for future people, not of just climate refugees, not just internally displaced persons, but those who have some measure of elective mobility in deciding where they live in the future. Well, give us an idea of the timeline to begin the process of relocating people to areas less severely impacted by climate change. Is it immediate, or do we have some time to plan for such a major undertaking? Well, who knows? Storm events are fairly random. We know roughly when they happen. There are plenty of shocks associated, not just storms. I think hurricanes, because that's our recent history. But there's all kinds of shocks. And what we know is that it's the interaction between shock and stress that ultimately drives people. There's all kinds of other factors associated with economic cycles, unemployment. There's a lot of deterministic or other exogenous variables that will drive people one way or the other. So we really don't have a great idea of timing. What we do know is we have certain horizons, for instance, with sea level rise, with a certain degree of probabilistic confidence, a great deal of confidence, where we know that there will be land that's absolutely inundated. We know that there will be areas that are having inordinate a level of risk that perhaps mortgage and insurance companies are not willing to share in that risk. And so in light of that kind of immediacy and the degrees of certainty associated with that, and they do vary, there's much to be debated there, this is going to happen much sooner than later. The question is, is it formal or is it degrees of informality or combination? Well, it's a combination. There's no way we could fundamentally have some planned strategic relocation. It's not practical by virtue of home rule in the United States and the autonomy and independence of states to make these determinations. Nor do we have fully the resources to do so. There will be winners and losers with climate change and with climate adaptation, with migration. There's no way that we can fully accommodate some universal translation to a future superior state in terms of moving people to less exposed areas of the country. So the timing is nobody knows, but in Duluth in particular, we're thinking at a 50-year time horizon. We're thinking iteratively between a range of, realistically, I think between 10 and 30,000 people, if not unrealistic. We're doing our analysis looking up to about 100,000 people just to see the spatial and economic and some a little bit of the environmental impacts associated with that. But it's really an open question. Dr. Jesse Keenan is a social scientist on the faculty of the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. He's an expert on the impacts of climate change on property and infrastructure. He was the keynote speaker at a recent climate conference in Duluth. His presentation was titled Destination Duluth, The Fact and Fiction of a Shared Climate Future. Professor Keenan, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you very much for having me. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov generic drugs. 
Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that.